A fascinating New York Times article written by John Branch on May 11, 2021, discovered the following dilemma. Only 44 people have reached the summit of all 14 of the world's 8,000-meter peaks, according to the people who chronicle such things. Or, now they say, maybe no one has. This article continues and says this, the Himalayan and the Karakoram ranges of Asia are home to all 14 of Earth's 8,000-meter peaks, not only the highest mountains in the world, but with familiar names that evoke wonder. Everest, K2, Annapurna, Lhotse among them. Thousands of miles away, however, in a small town in southwestern Germany, lives a 68-year-old man named Eberhard Drogalski, who has spent the last 40 years chronicling the ascents of the 8,000-meter peaks. Although he himself has not climbed these mountains, he is widely respected for compiling the records of those who have. He is among the cadre of behind-the-scenes researchers who give credence to these claims that make others famous. He can tell you the names of various expeditions, the dates, the details of the routes, and whether they used oxygen. He has studied photographs, and videos, and satellite coordinates, and accounts from climbers and witnesses. But he has some jarring news in this article. It is possible that no one has ever been on the true summit of all 14 of the 8,000-meter peaks, despite the claim of at least 44 people who say they did. Few, if any of them, tried to lie about their accomplishments. They just did not get to the top in every case, they stopped just a few meters short, whether by accident or whether by tradition. And Jagolsky says straightforwardly, he wants the history to reflect precision. He wants to make sure these people aren't lying. He wants to establish a firm standard for future generations of climbers, expectation for what constitutes a true summit. There are no two possibilities, he says. There is only one. A summit is not halfway or 99% of the way, it's all the way, close quote. And as such, if climbing the Earth's highest mountains seemed to be a near impossibility, the question that our psalm this afternoon poses is an even more difficult summon for us all. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? We're continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms, where we'll be covering chapters 21 through 30 in the third year of our 15-year intermittent summer series. And I've been encouraging us, each year we return to this study for all of our members to read through the entire book of the Psalms, 150 relatively and generally short chapters. If you started with us in the beginning of June with five weekdays left of June, just read 10 chapters this week, Monday through Friday, and you can catch up. Or with 49 weekdays left in June, July, and August, you can read about 3.3 chapters Monday through Friday to finish on time in August. And I encourage this so that we can grow in our familiarity and love for the Psalms, and in order that you can grow to be better lamenters and better worshipers of God through the Psalter, the hymn book of God's people. Well, to give you some context, I shared in previous years the Psalms is structured in five parts or five books. Book 1, composed from chapters 1 through 41. And biblical scholars show that four chiasms shape Book 1 in particular, which helps us to see the themes, the development, 
and emphases the psalm aims to communicate through the overall structure. Beginning from chapter 15 of Psalm 15, the psalms begin to turn to the topic of hoping in the coming king, and you will actually see a lot of similarities between Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, and that's because these two psalms are the bookends of the Tem Psalms, chapters 15 through 24, which present the second of four chiasms in book one. So follow along if you can. Chapter 15 and 24 raises the question of the coming king. Who will he be? 15 and 24. And Psalm 16 and 23, the psalmist speaks in the first person singular, speaking about their trust in God. And we saw how in chapter 17 and 22, how there were deep laments which turned to resurrection hope and praising of this God. Psalm 18 and 22 and 21 were royal psalms contemplating on the redemption God will accomplish for the promised offspring. And in the middle of this chiastic section, Psalm 19 is the celebration of God's glory in creation and scripture. Well, many scholars argue that the context of chapter 24, Psalm 24, relates to the celebration of the return of the Ark of the Covenant of God to Jerusalem, which you can read about in 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 16. But as the progression of the Psalms allude, is there more to the Psalms than David's immediate context? And as Dr. Jim Hamilton says, perhaps the most surprising aspect of this Psalm, Psalm 24, is the way that Psalm 24 hints that the righteous king to come will be, in some sense, Yahweh himself. Okay, well, what does that mean? To this, Dr. James M. Boyce is helpful. He says, although some psalms may be ambiguous in terms of who the hero of the psalm is, is it David? Is it David's heir? Is it the Messiah? But in this psalm, Boyce asks, how can a psalm be ambiguous that speaks of opening the gates of Jerusalem to the Lord, to the King of glory, or to the King Almighty, Lord Almighty. Here, there is no ambiguity at all. So from Psalm 24, I want to share with you three answers of who this King of glory is. Three answers to the question, who is the King of glory? Here's the outline so you can come along. Point number one, he is the Lord of all, from verses one through two. Point number two, he is one who ascends God's hill, verses three through six. And point number three, he is the coming king, from verses seven through ten. He is the Lord of all, he is the one who ascends God's hill, and he is the coming king. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this message you will see more clearly and more truly who the king of glory is. I pray through this word you will see anew the depths and the height that our Lord climbed for you to know who he is. And I pray that you will be strengthened and deepened in hope and emboldened in courage so that you can praise him truly for who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, worthy of all glory. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to listen to these words because these words are for you. There is no mystery here in what God desires for you to see, what God has revealed through his word in whatever you are going through, in whatever your circumstances that you may be in, he is the king of glory, and that means something. That means something for you and me, and that's what this psalm is teaching us. Guests and visitors, if you are here and you know yourself to not be a Christian, 
or are uncertain that you are, welcome. We are so very glad that you are here. We've been praying for you. We've been praying that God would lead you here, that God would give you ears to hear and eyes to see who he is, the king of glory. We pray this afternoon that you will trust him and follow him with us today. So let's now turn to his words found on page 458 and 459 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open through the entire duration of the reading and preaching so that you can know that these words are God's words to challenge you and build you up in him. Psalm chapter 24 says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. So, the question again. Who is this king of glory? Point number one from verses one through two. He is the Lord of all. The first observation we can make from these verses is the seeming lack of cohesion or disjointedness of verses one and two to the rest of the psalm. Not a few scholars have had the difficulty and have proposed that this psalm is actually a combination of three formerly unrelated compositions. You see the natural breaks in the psalm as our outline shows, don't you? Verses one and two. Verses 3 and 6 and 7 to 10. But then, how did this psalm come together? For what's the point of a declaration that God owns everything in a psalm about the coming of the ark of God? Well, exactly that. Follow along. In reality, the opening verses are not strange as long as we understand it as a warning, as a way of showing us to not think of God in exclusive or nationalistic terms. That the Psalms points us to something beyond, something greater than David and Israel. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. It says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It's true, brothers and sisters. The majority of the Psalm describe God and the people of God coming to Jerusalem. We can assume that the people are largely Jews And from it, it would be easy to conclude from this description that God is a Jewish God exclusively for he is for Jews only or that God loves Jews more than other people. In fact, this idea becomes a great stumbling block, doesn't it, for many Jews, even as we've been studying the book of Galatians. We see even after Jesus' death and resurrection, some Jews are confused. The Jews simply cannot let go that God's plan of redemption and salvation extended far beyond Israel. Well, Psalm 24 teaches us that even from the Old Testament, even from the beginning, God's plan of salvation was always for the whole world. 
Although for a time, God did it in a way that tied his earthly presence to Jerusalem, God nevertheless is God of all the earth. That's the point of those verses. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who is the king of glory? He is the Lord of all the universe and the creator of it. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this afternoon, in light of that reality, in light of that truth, what troubles weigh on your hearts and minds today? What worries and anxieties and pressures pressure you this afternoon? Let me just remind you again from these verses, Yahweh is the Lord of all. From creation to glory, He holds all things in His hands. Amen? Here's three verses among so many in the Bible to encourage us of this reality. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 and 12 says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hands are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In Psalm 125, a verse says this, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Amen? So dear brother and sister Christian, if your hearts are troubled by the cares of this world, I want to remind you to remember who rules this world. And I want to ask you, who rules your world today? Is it Yahweh, the Lord of all? Or perhaps is it you? Or is it your circumstances? Or is it whoever that speaks the loudest word or the most authoritative word to you? Perhaps your spouse, your parents, your dating app, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your child perhaps, your boss, or the likes you receive on your social media, do they ultimately rule over you, over your world, or Yahweh? Is Yahweh your king or not? Of course, to know such an indescribably glorious God would either result in two responses. Either you will fall on your face in utter fear and trembling, or fall on your face prostrated in worship in utter awe and astonishment. Actually, I guess these two responses are similar, but they are light years apart, aren't they? But either way, in the presence of such a holy and magnificent God, a natural question arises from the psalm. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Which leads us to the next point. Who is the king of glory? Point number two, he is one who ascends God's hill. The two questions are presented in verse 3, and it flows from the previous verses naturally. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Because looking to and envisioning such immense majesty arises in us a hunger for his glory. As Pastor John Piper says, the deepest longing of the human heart is to know and enjoy the glory of God. He says we are all starved for the glory of God, not self as no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem, do they? Why do we go? Why do we go to such places? Because there is great healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding the self. 
Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called Earth, standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It is a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world. Well, that quote that I just read, the last sentence that I just read, could be a sermon topic all on its own, why people suppress the glory of God for their own, but to stay on track with the text, to see it, to savor it, and to show it the glory of God is simply the reason why we exist. And hence, the greatest dilemma, brothers and sisters, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? As one commentator says, this is an ultimate issue that everyone must face, a question everyone must answer. Isn't it true? If we stop and think about it, if we slow down the busyness of the rat race we are in and pause to consider it, general revelation, what God reveals about himself in his common creation, the earth, the universe, and everything in it, we see that something, namely God, holds this world together. So in creation, when we look at the vast array of colors of the sunset and of the rainbow and of the countless species of birds and animals and flowers and plants and insects, we see that he is a creative God. When you hear of how deep and wide the ocean floor is in the recent headlines, and when you look up at the stars at night to get a glimpse of how vast the universe is, galaxies upon galaxies, you see how enormously big our God is. When you understand that the earth rotates in its axis and just one inch off of it will propel the earth into outer space, into darkness of the space. When you hear of devastating tsunamis or earthquakes that can floor entire cities in an instant, you know how God is unspeakably powerful. When you see the sun rising from the east and setting to the west every single day, every single morning, every single night, when you observe the changing of the seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter, you know that God is a God of order. And so general revelation will leave us asking, how will we approach him? Because to anger him would mean absolute devastation, wouldn't it? And so the psalmist gives us the answer. Look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. The psalmist presents to us four qualifications of one who can ascend the lofty hill of Yahweh, the one who may stand in his holy place. The requirements are a shortened version of those mentioned in Psalm 15. First, to have clean hands and a pure heart uh, refers to the disposition of the heart. Outer action of clean hands results from inward holiness of a pure heart. Jesus spoke of the pure in heart in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And clean hands, again, describe one who is holy indeed and in action. So if you remember the story of Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, upon helping her husband murder King Duncan in their home, Lady Macbeth could not quiet her guilty conscience, and her servant found her sleepwalking, convinced that her hands were stained with blood. So in her sleep, in her sleepwalking, she is scrubbing and scrubbing, but she cannot get the blood stains off of her hands. And she cries out, out, damned spot, out, I say. What? Will these hands never be clean? That was her dilemma after she murders somebody. Well, there is a sense Lady Macbeth's dream is our reality, isn't it? Every sin we have ever done has left stains on our hands. 
Every thought and act of rebellion stains our hands before God. Remember Pilate, when he washed his hands publicly, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, of Jesus' blood at his trial? Nevertheless, he was guilty, wasn't he? He was guilty of violating the Roman laws as well as his own conscience by agreeing to the crucifixion of one he had three times declared Jesus was innocent. In a similar sense, we also are guilty, aren't we, of rejecting God's glory, of suppressing truths for lies for our own glory. And so the question for us, what can wash our sins away? Furthermore, the second part of verse 4 describes one who has a right relationship to God and to others. The phrase, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, is translated in the NIV, who does not trust in an idol. The one who ascends to the hill of the Lord trusts in God entirely. He worships the true God and not idols. The next line describes one who has a right relationship to others. He does not swear deceitfully. He is an honest person. He has not sworn falsely at all. And so these inner and outer characteristics are of those who please God and of whom God approves. Which is why the next verse says in verse 5, look at verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, think about that. This is a most remarkable verse, friends. For right here in the Old Testament, an expression of what we speak of as the doctrine of justification by faith is recorded right here. These verses tell us that the one who approaches God sincerely and trustingly will find salvation in him. And that salvation is explained as blessing and righteousness. In the NIV translation, again, vindication or justification from him. Okay, it gets better, even more shocking, even more amazing. Look at the next verse, verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob. What? What's the shocking part there? All of a sudden, the man who qualifies to ascend to the holy hill of Yahweh, the one who receives blessing from the Lord and vindication from God of salvation, results in a generation of those who seek him, of those who seek his face, the God of Jacob. A single person blesses an entire generation of people, a multiple of people, a generation of people who seek him, who look to him, who wait for him, who trust in him. Who is this king of glory? He meets the holy requirements of God. He singularly trusts in God inside and out. He is vindicated by God and wins righteousness for a generation who seek him, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, Selah. It's a suitable place for an interlude, isn't it? Selah. For us to soberly reflect on who this one is. Because, brothers and sisters, if you think about it, if we're honest about it, you and I are not ones who have clean hearts and pure hands. We are not ones who have trusted in idols. We are not ones who have not spoken deceitfully at all. How many of us feel 100%, even 75%, even 50%, even 10% confident about having your innermost thoughts streamed live on broadcast for all to see. Spoken words, written words, texted words, emailed words for everyone to see. How many of us would feel no shame or guilt whatsoever publicizing all of our browsing history, all of our search history, and real watching history for all to see? 
What might your internet algorithms reveal about the treasures of your heart? And how many of you can claim boldly, not guilty? Who here can say, yes, I am the one who can ascend God's hill. I am the one who can stand in his holy presence. Countless men and women have attempted this climb. Some claim they have come close, but the reality is it is not close enough. To hear in the news, yes, he almost was prevented from getting shot in the head, or she almost missed getting hit by a Mack truck coming head on at 70 miles per hour, still means the end result is fatal, doesn't it? Psalm 1, 5 makes it simple and clear. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Selah. Brothers and sisters, what is our hope then? What is our answer? Selah. Reflect on it. Think about it. Meditate on it. What is our answer? The better question is, who? Who is this king of glory, which leads us to our final point. Point number three from verses seven to 10. He is the coming king. He is the coming king. Look at verses seven through 10 again. It says this, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory, Selah. I love that second Selah. It's like a mic drop. Let me, let me tell you why. These verses answer the great dilemma. What we thought, what had been an impossibility, has become our reason to rejoice and worship our God. This second half of this congregational psalm is the climax of the song. It's the turnaround. It's the key change. It's the final finale. It's the crescendo into the triple fortissimo. It's when the congregation of God are singing full-throated in praise of God. But wait a second. Who is this king of glory? The personification of the lifting up of the droopy heads in slumber of ancient gates tells us of a long-awaited king who has come. At last, as the moment of his arrival dawns, the long-locked gates of entry are summoned, are called upon to lift up their heads that the King of glory may enter in. The repetition of verses 7 and 8 and verses 9 through 10 means to reiterate just what thrilling occasion this is. It's like when at the end of our closing song, the music leader or I sometimes shout, let's sing that again, let's sing that again. Repeat that chorus one more time, one more time. That's what's happening by this repetition. But who is he? Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. Yet, he is the Lord, strong and mighty in battle, it says. Who is he, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies? He is truly God, yet he is truly man. He is Jesus the Christ, who is the Lord of all the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says of him, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the one who ascended the hill of the Lord the one who withstood the test of Satan in the mountain of temptation, the one who climbed up to Mount Tabor at the Mount of Transfiguration to foreshadow his glory. 
He is the one who climbed the Mount of Olives to pray on behalf of the generations and for God's will to be accomplished. Jesus Christ is the one who climbed Mount Calvary, bearing the weight of the cross in his own torn and mangled back, carrying the sins of all mankind. And Jesus Christ is the one who the Apostle John writes of in Revelation 14.1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the one who has clean hands. Hebrews 4.15 says of him, The one who had been tempted in all things, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is the one who has a pure heart. As John 1.14 says, he was full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the one who trusted God. As 1 Peter 2, verse 22 and 3 says, he committed no sins, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who entrusted himself to God, who judges justly. Jesus Christ is the one through whom we receive blessing and justification for salvation. As Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is through Jesus Christ, through whom we are adopted as generations of those who seek the face of the God of Jacob, as Titus 3 says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And as Hebrews 2.10 says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Amen? Amen? Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear, that the holy God, the creator of the universe, created us in love to show us and to share with us his glory. But even though we rejected his glory, his authority, his presence, by distrusting his word and by rebelling against him, seeking to be our own gods, God had a plan from the very beginning, didn't he, to set apart a people for himself who would come to know the lengths and the depths and the height and the widths of his amazing redeeming love. How? Through the promised and prophesied offspring who would be the king of glory. He left glory, didn't he? And descended into the depths of sinful humanity by his incarnation in order that he can ascend the hill of Calvary to hang on the cross and bear upon himself the sins of all men, the punishment of sin, the wrath of God as our substitute sacrifice. But bad news always is necessary before the good news because his death would propitiate, satisfy, cancel the debt of sin once and for all. And he received vindication. He received righteousness. And the God, the Father, resurrected Jesus from death on the third day, which proved that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And he ascended back into heaven to take his rightful place as the King of glory, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, in order that he can stand in the seat of the highest glory on Mount Zion and awaken these ancient gates to welcome his armies home from war. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, Jesus is the Lord strong and mighty. Jesus is the Lord God of armies. Who is this King of glory? Jesus is the King of glory. Amen? Do you see how perfect this psalm is? The psalm by its repetition seems to hint at the coming of the king of glory in two different occasions. The first, from war, the battle on Calvary, his first coming. And the second coming describes the king coming in glory with the host, with his armies arrayed with him in glory, speaking of his second coming. 
So guests and visitors, here's God's invitation for you. We are still between the time of his first coming and his second coming. When Christ returns, that will be the end of days. These words are a loving warning, a loving caution for you to look to him who came for you, who died for you, who rose again for you, who awaits for you to come home. So do not reject his invitation and stand on the wrong side of him. Do not delay. Do not hesitate. It is impossible. It is impossible for you to climb his holy hill. Just like the mountain climbers who never really summited the highest mountain, Scripture says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we invite you today, as we have been praying for you, surrender to Jesus this afternoon. Sink deep into his loving arms this moment. He will carry you to the end if you will now repent. That means to turn from trusting in yourself, turn from trusting in the things of this world to looking to him and believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Not for the person next to you, for you. Believe that and trust in him with all your worries, with all your cares today and the next day and forevermore. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, please talk to any of the pastors at the doors at the close of service or anyone smiling next to you. We'd be happy to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus with us. Brothers and sisters of New Covenant Baptist Church, are you thankful that the King of glory has come and is coming again? Do you worship him as he truly is, the King and Lord of your life? Then what of worries? What of fears? What of anxieties? and depression, and conflicts, and circumstances, you can cast it on him. You can trust in him. He is the king of glory. You can praise him right here, right where you are, right there in your waiting, right there in your suffering, right there in your weakness, because it is when you are down in the depths, you can look up. And when you are low, you can look high. And when you are humbled, you can rise with him as the scripture promises. So while we are here on earth, while we are below, let's praise him here. He welcomes us. He invites us. He loves us and holds us. He is the Lord of all. He is the one who has ascended the hill of the Lord and stands in the presence of God. He is the coming king. So hope in him alone today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the one who has come for us and the one who is coming again. Father, help us to rely on this truth. Father, while this society and this culture and all around the world, people chant and champion pride, Father, may those who know you humble themselves here below and look up to you, the only one who has ascended the hill of God, who stands in the presence of God. Father, we declare that you are our king and no other. King of kings, Lord of lords, we look to you and we praise you. Help us to do that. Help us to desire you. Help us to honor you. Help us to give you the glory that you deserve for all of our days until you return. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.